This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc hello everyone and welcome to slash film daily today is friday february 23rd 2024 on today's episode of the show we're going to have a spoiler filled conversation about ethan cohen and trisha cook's new movie drive away dolls my name is Ben Pearson. I am an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by SlashFilm editors, BJ Colangelo. Hi, 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 yeah. And Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. All right, guys. I just thought it would be cool for us to talk about this movie. Uh, I saw it last night. I think both of you have seen it. You saw it a little while back. Um, so hopefully it's still relatively fresh on your minds. Uh, let's kick things off with just like general thoughts. Uh, BJ, let's start with you. What did you think about this movie? Oh, man, I'm so sorry. This movie's going to become my entire personality for the next, like, three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is another movie, like Lisa Frankenstein, that just, like, hits very specific beats that make me very happy. Um, I loved seeing it. I loved seeing Trisha Cook finally get to have a movie on the big screen because I'm a big fan of her short films, as well as her work as an editor on Coen Brothers movies. But I just, I've been really missing a movie like this that just really leans in to being kind of dumber than dog shit in like a positive way. <laughs> uh, Brad, what'd you think about this one? Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this one. This is like, it's a, a great uh, caper, like the kind you'd expect from uh, if we had both of the Coen brothers, but even with one half and working with, you know, Trisha Cook, it still has the, you know, a little bit of their, their signature style to it. Um, and it just feels like it, it has some like nostalgic energy to it without being like necessarily specifically nostalgic for like any one movie or thing. It just feels kind of like a, a genre that we don't get much of anymore that we used to see it, see a lot more of. And I just, yeah, I just had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. I appreciated these sort of like simplicity of the story. Like, you know, these characters basically like stumble across something that they shouldn't have. And the whole movie is about, 
sort of a, a slow chase almost to, um, to a climax. And I, I sort of appreciate the, yeah, the simplicity, the streamlined nature of that. Um, I didn't like this movie as much as either of you did. I laughed a, a handful of times, so I appreciated the comedy aspect of it. I kind of felt like it had an odd mixture of tones. I felt like it whipped back and forth between being really goofy and really sincere. And there are times when it's basically like a live action Looney Tunes cartoon. And then there are times when it feels more like a genuine relationship drama. And I just thought the mixture of and transitions between those two things didn't quite gel as smoothly for me as I'd have liked. Uh, but I'm wondering what you guys made of the, um, I guess, those, those shifts in tones. Uh, BJ, start with you if you have anything to say about that. To me, I love when movies do things like this because that feels very reminiscent of my own life. Like, you know, you can have a day where something is really tough and you have to have very, very serious conversations and then later on get like high as hell and watch Jellystone cartoons and laugh until you're crying. And like, that's kind of how this movie feels where there are those moments that feel so ridiculously and cartoonish, but then there are parts that feel so serious because that's kind of what life is. Like life is so unserious while also being the most serious thing, anything any of us will ever experience. (laughs) Uh, Brad, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, like to me, I feel like it's something kind of like the Coens have done before. Like they, they have tinges of absurdity in their movies and then they have moments of sincerity and like seriousness and like, you know, even, even like, you know, incredible violence. And they just managed to mix them all together very nicely. And and I, I feel like Drive Away Dolls uh, did that pretty well. I didn't have a problem like mixing the two because I I liked the authenticity of the relationship between uh, Geraldine uh, Viswanathan and Margaret Qualley. But then I, I still loved the the silliness of like the the chase and like the bumbling guys chasing them and 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 all of that stuff so like yeah I, I didn't have a problem with those two things coming together at all okay so you mentioned the actors there let's talk about them um one by one and just their performances and the vibe that, that they uh, brought to this movie um let's start with margaret qualley uh that accent is quite a lot um as somebody from the south i just i feel uh, kind of attacked every time i hear any actor try to do a southern accent on screen because it's almost never right like i'm thinking of uh, keanu reeves in in um, the uh, what's the one where he uh, where um, Al Pacino plays the devil? Uh, Star Wars. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, the Devil's Advocate <laughs> the Devil's is Advocate. the movie I was thinking of, um, where Keanu Reeves is just like trying and failing and just sounds nothing like that's anybody. not that's not fair though because like you pick Keanu Reeves doing any accent and that's like that's the complaint you're gonna get because because like I, I mean Keanu Reeves come on the guy's great accents are not his strong suit. So. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. I, I'm just thinking about that one specifically because uh, he's from Gainesville in that movie and I like went to college in Gainesville and I know people from that area. I've spent a lot of time there and nobody ever sounds like that there. But uh, anyway, I just. I kind of felt like this accent that she's doing is like a mix between Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona. It was like a weird yes. spot between the <laughs> middle of them. Um, yes. I have, I eventually sort of like came to begrudgingly accept it, but I will admit that it was a bit of a hurdle for me at the, at the start of this. Um, what do you guys make of the accent? And then we'll just talk about like the rest of her performance. I'm so glad that you brought up the Raising Arizona thing, because this is exactly who this character feels like is like, 
the character of Jamie feels like she was plucked out of like raising Arizona and she's doing such a Nicolas Cage thing. And I'm very curious like to see how other people are going to feel about her character because I kind of locked in on it immediately of like, oh, this is a Cage thing. But also we have a tendency to not accept that women know what they're doing when they're intentionally making these choices like we do. Like, oh, that's just Nicolas Cage doing his thing. Everyone just accepts it. When women do it, they're like, mm, that was a bad choice. I didn't like them doing that. And it's like, why? Why do you think that they're not capable of making this consciously? Mm. Um, but the the accent, yeah, it's like so difficult to place where it is coming from. She claims Texas. No one that I know from Texas sounds like that. <laughs> but at the same time, I don't care. Like, I love the bear and they often say the word mom instead of mom. And it's like, that's I don't <laughs> care. Who cares? It's yeah. It's goofy. I have fun. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I have like just, you know, being from the South, I have like a particular hang up about this uh, sometimes. I don't mean to take it out specifically on Margaret Qualley. I, it, my issues go far beyond her performance in this movie to uh, Hollywood at large. We turn this episode into like Ben's dialect therapy hour. Like I have no problem. <laughs> yeah, for, for me, it's more about like the personality that comes through, even if the accent isn't accurate. Like it, it just adds a dimension to her character that... Uh, that that just helps helps the character shine. Yeah, yeah. Her saying she, things like "honey bun," I'm I'm in. Like you sound like you might work at a truck stop diner somewhere off of like Route sixty six. I'm down. Yeah, I kind of like I, I like that stuff. And then there were moments where she would do it almost in like back to back sentences, and I'm like, all right, that's a little much. Like even for a character where that's supposed to be your personality, I kind of feel like there were moments where the script had her like pressing down the gas pedal a little too hard. Um, but I don't know that that's somebody or that's just like a, uh, that's a personal preference thing, I think. Um, and that was just, uh, I, I sort of bumped on that a little bit um, as the movie was going on, but I, I generally loved like the sort of, I don't know. She almost had like a, a swinging dick energy or something about her where she just kind of like didn't care and is very much her own person is super confident and like walks into any situation knowing that she's going to, uh, be able to sort of take control and, and do whatever she needs to do. So I appreciated that and, and didn't really have any qualms with the character beyond that, really. Um, we call them Lestharios in the community. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've never heard that term. That's amazing. You're uh, welcome for your, your gay education of the day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, Geraldine Viswanathan, I, I thought she was terrific. She, um, I mean, obviously, she's like a little bit more of a buttoned up character than Margaret Qualley. Uh, she's not doing a, um, an outsized accent or anything like that. Uh, so maybe that's part of the reason why I, um, if not related more to her character than like appreciated more of what she was doing here. But uh, what did you guys think about her? Um, BJ, let's start with you. So I love the character of Marion. I'm not quite a Jamie, but I'm definitely more Jamie coded than I am Marion coded. So I have an affinity for Marion characters because I often am the person who takes these baby birds under my wing and it's like, all right, let's 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 get you out there and break you out of your shell and for the love of God, stop wearing such high necklines. Um, so I love her character and I think she actually has the harder job in this movie because playing the person that's a little little bit more buttoned up that's a little more insecure that's a little bit smaller is way harder to make like do effectively when you're surrounded by such larger than life characters and I think she nails it like she is such like the grounding rod of this movie yeah I definitely man I, ca I can't wait I hope that Hollywood is, is watching and like just puts her in more stuff I mean she broke out I think it's fair to say with her role in um, blockers but that was like several years ago that was like 2018 2019 or something like that and she's been in a handful of things since, have but... either of you seen the package no I haven't no. what's that 
Oh, my dear gentle Jesus. Okay, so the package is one of those like randomly shot, like just dropped on Netflix comedies. And it's her and then the actor who plays the pizza boy in Stranger Things who's in a ton of things and I can never actually remember his name. Oh, yeah. Um, But he's the lead in it. But it's about like, like a bunch of friends going out and having like a like a camping trip and then they accidentally cut his dick off and then the entire movie is about them trying to get his dick to the hospital so they can reattach it and it, she is so ungodly hilarious in this movie and that was when i was like i don't know who this girl is but she is a superstar and then i started finding her in other things i actually got to interview her for uh rumble that animated monster wrestling movie with terry cruz she's a delight too so like that also helps <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Uh, Brad, what did you think about her in this movie? Yeah, I think she's fantastic. Honestly, I, I think I've developed a little bit of a crush on her uh, based on her performance in, in Blockers and now this. And now I need to see the package because I also just saw that that's directed by uh, Jake Zemanski, which, you know, he's he's a great comedy dude. So uh, I'm going to have to seek out the package. But uh, yeah, she's she's great in it. And like, uh, you know, I knew that she could be, you know, ha- have like the the role of like the, the outgoing, you know, more boisterous character because that's kind of what she does in Blockers. So having her be more reserved here, she's a great counter to Margaret Qualley and just the two of them together make for such uh, a great pair in this movie. So yeah, I, I hope people start um, casting her in more things too because I, I think she's great. Mm-hmm. So uh, one question that I wanted to pose to you specifically, BJ, is like, do you think this movie is a throwback to something? Because my wife and I were watching it last night and after we were talking about it and we kind of landed on the idea that this movie kind of feels like a like it's referencing things that we haven't seen. And I, like the extent of my personal exploration of queer cinema in the late 90s was Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy. Like that's about as far as I got, you know, my well, my knowledge of some good stuff. <laughs> I know my knowledge of that period. I've heard you talk about uh, like, but I'm a cheerleader and movies like that before. And I just uh, my knowledge of that period and and that entire like, I don't know what you wouldn't want to call it milieu of filmmaking, that subgenre, that that whole community of filmmaking is extremely, extremely limited. So I was wondering if this movie is a throwback back to something that I just didn't recognize. Uh, and I, I know that you're much more familiar with um, <laughs> with whole, that whole corner of the, the cinema landscape. So what, what do you think about that? Sure. So this to me, it, it, the answer is yes and no, because yes, it absolutely is a throwback to the new queer cinema movement where you started getting Jamie Babbitt and Gregoraki and all of these like very specifically like weirdo queer movies. Um, But the thing is, they've been trying to make this movie since that time period. But a lot of those movies that were made in that, like in the 90s, were very, very, very low budget. And this is a movie that requires a little bit more of a budget because it is a road trip movie and that is going to require more money. And people just were not ready to have that. So there are moments in the script where I can still feel like, oh, yeah, this was written in 1998. Like I can feel that. Um, So it definitely is a throwback to that filmmaking period, but also it comes from that period. It just took forever to get made, which I find very, very interesting. It uh, it, it just, it feels like a movie from that era, but with money, um, which I like. Um, but then something else is that this has become such a throwback though, because it's so much a love letter to lesbian bar culture. And unfortunately, um, as of, you know, this recording, there are less than 30 lesbian bars in the entire country. Um, so wow. this is, uh, yeah, there's a wonderful docu series called the lesbian bar project. I highly recommend people check it out, but, um, 
this is paying homage to a, a time period that was thriving um, when they started writing the script, but that doesn't exist anymore. Um, so there are there were like a couple of moments in this where I was like getting a little verklempt because I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's not a thing anymore. That's just not a thing we get to have anymore. And that sucks. But I love how joyous this movie is embracing it. So yeah, it's it's weird. This is a movie that feels trapped within two different time periods where yes, it's a throwback, but also it just, it feels like it was made in the 90s and then plucked and dropped in 2023. Mm -hmm. Brad, did you have any feeling, uh, did you have that same feeling when you're watching it? Like maybe this is referencing something that I don't know what it's referencing or was that just me? Um, Partially, but um, but like I didn't realize that the movie had actually been in development for so long that it was written back in the, the late 90s. But like you do like feel the vibe of a movie that was made like in 97 or 98, it just has that, that feeling to it that adds to the the throwback vibe for me. I, I kind of felt like I, that there was a, a, like a 1970s sexploitation vibe that was also under there too, especially when it comes to the, the psychedelic interstitials, which like don't really make a lot of sense until you get to the end of the movie. Um, and so that was something to me where like, it felt like they were infusing, you know, that like that 90s style movie with a little bit of like old school sexploitation from the seventies as well. Oh yeah. Totally like Russ Meyer era, which Trisha Cook has talked about, like she intentionally wanted this movie to be a little sleazy and who else to, to emulate than Russ Meyer. (laughs) Okay. So actually you just, just touch on something that I want to bring up in just a second. Let's take a break and then we'll be right back. Okay, so those psychedelic transitions that you mentioned, I kind of, I mean, I felt like they came out of nowhere because I think objectively they did. Um, but Brad, did did the end of the movie sort of um, I don't know, make those make sense to you in a way? Because I walked away from that being like, why were those there? What is going on? Yeah, so I, I do feel like the earlier ones, they, they, they almost feel like just like a, a strange stylistic choice. And then once like you start to be able to discern the fact that that's, that, that Miley Cyrus is like is in them and then you see what that's leading to like it makes sense in the grand scheme of like the story that's being told um but like I part of me wishes that there was a little more uh smoother way of introducing that concept because like otherwise it just feels kind of like a non sequitur like almost like it's from the viewpoint of like the the case of dicks in a way like this this is the the story of how the dicks came to be yeah um but and so like it was a, it was a, it was a nice touch and it was it was interesting to me but it did f- feel at least for the first half of the movie that it was kind of separated from everything else that was happening yeah what did you make of those um moments bj so when we first started getting kind of like the the lava lamp vision of psychedelic, you know, scene transitions, I had this moment of like, okay, clearly this is here for a reason. This is going to lead to something. What is it going to lead to? And then as we started getting more and more insight into what Miley Cyrus's character of Tiffany Plastercaster is doing, it like I then enjoyed all of those moments. I'm like, oh, I like that you teased this to me this way because this reveal really works for me because I am absolutely obsessed with the real life Cynthia Plastercaster. So to see a character, you know, homaged in this way, I thought was really clever. And I thought Miley Cyrus is a perfect bit of metacasting because she's got a foundation called the Happy Hippie Foundation. So she's a hippie. Also, that foundation works to like help unhoused LGBTQ youth. And this is a gay movie. I was like, oh, you all like really nailed it with this casting here. This is great. 
Yeah, see, I didn't even know that Cynthia Plastercaster was a real person. Like, I'm so disconnected from, like, the real life, whatever this is based on, and that Pearson, I have no idea are you idea telling me real. you've never heard the song Plastercaster by Kiss? What is happening? Uh, no, I can't <laughs> say that I have, actually. <laughs> yeah, she's a real person. Um, her cast of Jimi Hendrix's penis is in the Icelandic Museum of, like, phalluses. Uh, she's a legend. She died last year, or in 2022, RIP. She's great. I have an article okay. about her coming out soon. <laughs> Oh man, I can't I can't wait to read that because yeah, that's once again a whole area of the world that I have no idea what I'm talking about there. Um, okay, so uh, did the cameos work for you guys? It sounds like the Miley thing definitely worked for for BJ. Uh, did that work for you, Brad? And then we'll talk about the other big name that shows up in this movie. Yeah, I mean, for me, like Miley Cyrus is the kind of person who like I would prefer if I we got to see her popping up in like more random, strange roles like this. You know, she she kind of just has a cool uh, a vibe about her, and so it was like a, just a, a surprising moment, and it worked for that kind of character you know she kind of just fit in with uh, that that style of having this like this like hippie girl um and then uh you know pedro pascal is it was a fun addition like to, to me the cameos in this movie including matt damon they're the kind of cameos that i appreciate so much more than just like throwing a big star in as a surprise because these cameos they weren't treated as surprises like the trailer didn't try to hide them at all both pedro pascal um, and Matt Damon are in the trailer. And I even think that you see Miley Cyrus in the trailer, actually. Um, mm-hmm. So, so like, there wasn't even really a surprise there. It's just cool having big names in very small roles like this. And, like, especially have, seeing Matt Damon in this role, you know, as the senator who, you know, had his uh, dick, you know, um, like, cast and turned into a dildo without his permission. It was just a funny, funny little touch. So, like, I, I really liked the cameos. Yeah, I had no idea that Matt Damon was like heavily featured in the trailer. I think because I I saw uh, maybe maybe I didn't even watch the full trailer. I was just like I saw enough of it to be like, yes, I'm interested in this movie. And then maybe I bailed from there. But uh, so I was surprised when he showed up to me, like the appearance of Matt Damon specifically. It kind of reminded me of his appearance in another movie, which I'm sorry to spoil for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. But it's a couple years old at this point, And there's no way to really talk about this without just coming right on saying it. But it reminded me a little of his appearance in uh, Steven Soderbergh no sudden move where he has like a similarly small role as this shady figure who's been kind of like pulling the strings the whole time and Soderbergh is not exactly the same type of director as Ethan Cohen and he makes all kinds of different projects but watching this did make me wonder if Soderbergh is kind of becoming like the heir apparent to the Coens in a way especially with his crime dramas and I was wondering if either of you had any thoughts about that no, I think that you're definitely onto something in terms of Soderbergh kind of following in the Coens' footsteps. Like the Matt Damon character, like I knew he was there, but in the trailer, he's only presented in the scene where he's holding the briefcase and he's got the hat on and he's clearly trying to be incognito. So the reveal that he's a Republican senator and there's that like horrifying billboard of his horrifying blonde family was so funny to me. And so I loved him being here. I loved, I loved his you know, surprise. I also love when actors are willing to lean into the fact of like, yeah, this is what I look like. And that's totally fine. Even though I doubt this is like, this is not Matt Damon, the man, like that's not how he is as a person, but yeah, he looks like someone who could be on Fox news and they'd love him. Why not? (laughs) So I love that. And the Pedro cameo, like, killed me like it was so funny his head in a hat box is so funny but the fact that he gets his eyes thumbed again like game (laughs) of thrones i was a howling in the theater yeah that was very funny uh brad do you have any any i guess additional thoughts about matt damon or the soderbergh connection at all uh no not really i think i think you're kind of right on there soderbergh definitely has tendencies of of the coens just in his uh his own way 
Okay, so um, BJ, I have here in our notes, who is Trisha Cook? And I know that you wrote this whole article that uh, it's called, if you're a Coen Brothers fan, you also love Trisha Cook, even if you don't know it. And I just wanted to clear out and give you some space to sort of explain. I mean, we've, we've alluded to her role in this movie a little bit, or, or role behind the scenes, rather. Um, but I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit uh, about who she is and um, why she matters to you. Sure. So Trisha Cook, um, most people that are writing about her are writing her as like Ethan Cohen's wife and sometimes editor of Cohen Brothers movies, which yes, is true. Um, but Trisha Cook has been an editor for a very long period of time. Trisha Cook is also a lesbian. And if that doesn't make sense in your head of like, well, how is she married to a man then? Um, they're poly. They have other partners. They've talked about it. This isn't news. Um, this is no different than like a gay person marrying their friend and raising children together because, you know, they're friends and they love each other. But like, no, Trisha Cook's a lesbian. Um, so Trisha Cook is, you know, the longtime editor of the Coen brothers. She first joined up with them on Miller's Crossing. She's also, you know, one of the editors of like The Big Lebowski and like a lot of their comedies. She's very integral in the editing process and comedy films live and die by their editing and so a lot of the things that i think people view as like oh these are cohen touches like they're also just as much her hand and her creative vision as well and like i think that's a very important thing that you know often gets looked over but she is the one who came up with this title it was originally supposed to be drive away dykes but that changed for obvious reasons um but she you know was the one who came up with the idea she wrote on this she's also uh co-directed some very very queer specific short films um that are really hard to find because that's just unfortunately the nature of a lot of queer media um so Something else that I think is very interesting is I was lucky to witness a Q&A with the advocate and Ethan and Trisha after my screening of this. And Ethan is very bold on, in saying, like, Trisha Cook co-directed this. The only reason she doesn't have the director, like, label, like, officially is because she's not a member of the DGA. And also the two of them don't care. <laughs> like, straight up, they're like, we don't care. They're like, we don't care if people don't understand our relationship. We don't care if people don't understand that she also co-directed this, despite not actually getting a directorial credit. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think... To me, that is even more exciting because there are so many things in this movie that like no shade to Ethan Cohen. He's brilliant. But like a, a dude could not have come up with this. Like this is so clearly like lesbian filmmaking and somebody who is really, really versed in lesbian culture and lesbian filmmaking which trisha cook is. Mm -hmm. And so this movie does not exist without her hand and I wrote that piece because it has been very frustrating how many people are just like, ah, it's the solo Cohen movie. And it's like, this is co-directed to this. It just is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's different. I think maybe it's, it's um, tempting for people to refer to it that way because uh, Joel Cohen, Ethan's brother um, directed the tragedy of Macbeth not too long ago. And that was like, Joel Cohen, by the way, was like the one who I think I think I have this right. He was traditionally credited as the sole director on a lot of the Cohen brothers projects, even though he co-directed them with Ethan. And it's again because of like DGA rules and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's correct. Yeah. So uh, 
so yeah, that that's yeah. Maybe just because he made um, the tragedy of Macbeth, and that was like a solo directorial effort, he didn't have a. a I mean, his wife is uh, Frances McDormand, who, who starred or co-starred along mm-hmm. with Denzel Washington in that movie. Um, so he didn't have like a, a creative partner in the same way. Um, so yeah, maybe uh, Trisha Cook is just getting like minimized in this pro- in this uh, conversation, this discourse around this movie. But um, but yeah, obviously it's important to to include her in this conversation. So. Um, Okay, before we wrap things up here, I just wanted to know like where would you guys rank this as a as a, I guess in the Cohen filmography, even though you know this is a, a technically like a separate thing than a quote unquote Cohen Brothers project. Um, do you have like a a uh, shifting Cohen Brothers ranking or anything, or any idea of where this might fall for you, either one of you? So the Cohen Brothers movies are all pretty much so great like there's there's a few duds in there for sure that like i'm not necessarily a fan of but like they have so many great movies it's kind of hard to like crack some of those top tier ones and they also have such like a vast like array of like variety among what they do you know we're talking going from fargo to big lebowski to no country for old men to a serious man uh burn after reading you know like they they share certain traits but like they they go back and forth so seamlessly between doing this like bleak drama, you know, crime thriller kind of stuff to doing absurd dark comedies. Um, and they're all so good in their own ways. So like for me, I think that this movie is probably more mid tier just because it's, it's hard to, to hit, you know, some of those movies from the Coens that I love so much, but I still really dug this movie. So like having it, you know, be a mid tier Coen brothers movie is by no means like a slight against it. Mm-hmm. BJ, what about you? This is, you know, on like personal feelings, this one's really high up for obvious reasons. But I will say, and this is, again, not to shade any of the films that came after because I do love all of them quite a bit. But this is my favorite Coen Bros movie since No Country for Old Men, um, which was... 2007 mm-hmm. um and like that's not to say i don't love a serious man or hail caesar or true grit or any of those because i do but this this is like a movie that made me so excited like i left the theater and all i wanted to do was talk about it with other people and i haven't had that feeling about one of their films in quite some time and so so that was a, a big thing for me but also you know this is a movie that I I hate the idea of like, quote unquote, important cinema, because I think that, you know, that's subjective and that can change no matter who, you know, who's the viewer. But this is a piece of important cinema because lesbian movies, especially made by studios, don't get to just be silly and they don't get to be just fun. They're always really dramatic or traumatic and like, no shade to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I love you. You're beautiful. But like, this is what I want out of lesbian cinema. Mm. And so to get it is very exciting because if this succeeds, then it proves like we can have more stories where people just happen to be lesbians and their stories are fun and goofy. It doesn't have to be about being a lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we should say like, if you've not seen this movie, but you're listening to this conversation, like there's so much lesbian sex in this movie. It is like out of control in like a great way. Like it's, it's so, um, you know, it's more than I've ever seen in a mainstream American movie anyway. So like there's definitely something to be said for that. And like, it's kind of just amazing that like a studio, uh, released something like this just because uh, for like the sheer fact that you don't see this very often, but as you point out rightly, BJ, like of course, this should be much more commonplace than it actually yeah, is. Yeah, it's so. oh my god! Like Beanie Feldstein unscrewing a wall-mounted dildo was one of the f- <laughs> like 
the I laughed so hard and there were a couple people in my screening that were like is that a thing or did they just do that to be funny and I was like why do you think they sell them with suction cups it's so they stick to the wall like come on and they're like oh, I had no people. idea <laughs> they're like I had no idea and I was like well now you do yeah, for me, I feel like, there, well, first of all, there are a handful of Coen Brothers movies that I still haven't seen. Like, I missed A Serious Man, which I know people love, and I still need to see Barton Fink and The Hutsucker Proxy. But for me, I would put this one somewhere near the middle, probably like you, Brad, like maybe sandwiched somewhere between like Ballad of Buster Scruggs and Burn After Reading or something like that. But um, yeah, I guess like we're pretty close to the end here. Do, do either one of you have any uh, closing thoughts on Driveway Dolls or anything that you wanted to highlight that we didn't mention in this conversation at all? I mean, um, I don't think I, I, I we didn't talk about uh, Bill Camp in this movie, but he's hilarious. So just shout out to Bill Camp for being super funny in this movie. Yeah, Bill Camp is, oh, he's so funny and really makes the best of his small role, which I love. And just Coleman Domingo is always the best casting decision anyone can ever make. He's also so funny. Um, and uh, I don't know, if anyone's throwing a basement makeup party, please send your invitations to me. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. The basement makeout party. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can find more about Driveway Dolls and all the stories that we mentioned on, the, on today's show at SlashFilm.com. I will link to, we have like an Ending Explained article. We have BJ's piece about Trisha Cook. I'm going to link to all that. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a ton. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all on Monday.